now installing spring. Did you like that? I saw that yesterday. I'm like, oh my goodness, I need to add that to the front slide of the, of the lecture. Installation failed, error 404, spring not found. Spring is not available in your area. <laughs> All right. All right, Antoine, are we good? All right, session five, when people are our gods. I want you to do this exercise with me. Everyone just breathe in like a big breath. Notice I didn't tell you to exhale, but most of you have exhaled by now. And if you hadn't, just keep, keep holding it if you want to. But actually, I wouldn't have even had to tell you to inhale. Because why? We're alive. We're natural, right? Living human beings inhale and exhale. It's a natural thing that we do. So we'll come back to that. In the meantime, just keep breathing. <laughs> you know, the first week we were together this semester, I asked if there was a particular false god that you might like expounded upon to come and let me know, and that I would work them into a later lecture. And that is today. So thank you for those of you who came and gave me some ideas, and I saw some groupings. Uh, two, we're going to have time for two of them today. And one is money, and it came in the form of, I heard money, wealth, possessions, materialism, greed, all of that were going to bundle into one. And the other one was people, uh, husbands, children, family, um, which, because Kelly speaks uh, quite a bit on people, I'll just share with you how God has worked with that idol in my life for that one. So first, money. Or like I said, you can call it materialism or wealth or greed. Someone said that God would be replaced by money. This someone was actually Frederick Nietzsche, and he wrote a book back in the 1800s. And he noticed a trend that was happening in the West back then in the 1800s. And he said that with the absence of God growing in Western culture, God will be replaced by money. Oh, I think maybe he was on to something. Greed is especially hard to see in ourselves, I think. Our hearts can be blind to this fa false god, and greed is a form of idolatry. Scripture actually tells us this plainly. Look at Colossians 3. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater. Worshiping the things of this world. Ephesians 5. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. And then Luke 12. Then he said, this is Jesus speaking, Beware. Guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. What is greed? If, if we had time to look further into the surrounding passages around Jesus' words here in Luke, if you look at Luke 11 and 12, you see that Jesus is actually warning people about worrying over their possessions. For Jesus, greed is not only the love of money, but it's the excessive anxiety about it. 
Another version says a man's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. The word consist there where it's talking about consist of your possessions, that's to be defined by what you own and consume. Later, Jesus comes right out and calls this what it is. He says, this is in Luke 16, no one can serve two masters for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And when we see it like this, it looks as ridiculous as it is, right? I am a piece of paper and I control your entire life. So this money, wealth, materialism, greed, it is a false god. And not only is it a terrible master, but it replaces the one true God as the master of my life. So what does this look like? idolaters do three things with their idols no matter what the idol is and you might remember this from when I did the countdown from Tim Keller's book just 10 points that I thought stood out to me in that book he says they love them trust them and obey them so put now the love of money or materialism or greed whatever helps you understand this better and understand what that's trust it and I obey it I put some so what now what questions on your handout this is a different kind of handout today did you notice there's no blanks because um I uh we are doing scripture today and all the scriptures are on there but I'll also just be sharing some personal ways God has worked in my life and I don't know what you want to write down so that's why you know if if you want to look like you're paying attention and i lose you in a story you can make your grocery list or something because there's <laughs> lots of white space on there for you today but pay attention to those so what now what questions underneath this topic because that will give you a, a good idea of is this a false god in your life is it creeping in All right, the idolatry also makes us servants of money. The word, when Jesus uses the word serve money in that Luke 16 passage, he's using the same word that means the solemn covenantal service rendered to a king. How many kings can you have? Yeah. So again, do you see the the deep, the richness of his words to us there? the solemn covenantal service rendered to a king, and that belongs only to the king of kings, right? The Lord of lords, our one true God. Money is one of the most common counterfeit gods there is, and it blinds us when it happens to us. And this is true for a lot of the false gods. We've talked about that. It controls you through your anxieties and lust. I want to look at uh, a man in the Bible, and I really want you to see how God... uh, loves on him how God deals with him I want us to look at the heart of Zacchaeus Luke 19 his story is found in just 10 verses you can read his whole story and many of you know the song right Zacchaeus was a and uh man was he yeah what did he do he climbed up in the sycamore tree why for the Lord he wanted to see right There's a huge crowd. Well, Zacchaeus was the arch tax collector. He was the chief among the publicans. And we find him in Jericho. And Jericho was actually a major custom center during that time. So as the head of the entire system, he was one of the wealthiest people, and he was most hated. And verse 7 tells us that. 
Verse 7 says the people called him, quote, a notorious sinner. So here comes Jesus, and Zach's up in the tree, and Jesus, because of the crowd, so Jesus calls him by name and tells him to come down. I love that verse 5 says, quick, come down, for I must be a guest in your home today. How cool would that be if, like, Jesus said that to you? right? It'd be like, yeah, I'm coming down quick. I'd probably fall out of the tree. So Zach climbs down quickly and takes Jesus home. And, and scripture says, quote, in great excitement and joy. So here goes this notorious sinner bringing Jesus home for dinner. Okay. So the crowds, well, they're not so happy about this and they're grumbling and complaining. They're very displeased that Jesus would be the guest of, again, quote, a notorious sinner. And the next verse, verse 8, is a meanwhile verse. It's like a back at the ranch verse. So let's pick it up and read scripture here. I have like an error message on here, and he's gone from the booth. So I need somebody to go find Antoine. Michelle, would you go find Antoine? Anton, <laughs> Kenton, anyone, because I can no longer. Okay, so I'm going to keep teaching, or you lose a story. Uh, Luke 19, 8 through 10. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor Lord. And if I've cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, salvation, did you fix it? <laughs> Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Michelle. All right. Salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. Zacchaeus meets Jesus. Look at the heart change. Again, we can't see the heart, but we can see the actions, all right? So he's promised to give away 50% of his income to the poor. This was far beyond the 10%, which was the law back then. His heart had been affected. Zacchaeus makes a second promise. Do you see it in there? And this second promise doesn't have to do that much with charity and mercy, but more with justice. He had made a great deal of money by cheating, and the Mosaic Law makes provision for this. The scriptures are on your handout there. You can read them later on your own. Leviticus 5 and Numbers 5 tells you what to do to remedy this when it happens. And what if you have stolen anything, what you are to do is to give it back with 20% interest. What does Zacchaeus do? Far more than that. He says four times the amount he had stolen. That's 300% interest. Do you see? This is a heart change. How could this happen? A guy who's a thief taking people's money is now giving his money away. There's only one explanation. He meets Jesus, right? And where money was his false idol, his false God, now Jesus is. Now, don't miss this because now look what Jesus says. Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. Notice Jesus did not say, if you live like this, salvation will come to this house. No, it has come. God's salvation does not come in response to a changed life. A life changes in response to God's salvation. That's really important. If, if you hear nothing else, that sentence would be good. Okay? That's really important. 
All right, he went from being an oppressor of the poor to being a champion of justice. He went from accruing wealth at the expense of the people around him to serving others with his own wealth. Again, why? There's only one explanation. Jesus had replaced money as Zacchaeus' savior. And so money went back to being just that. It's just money. It's just, it's just money. So money was now a tool for doing good, for serving people. Now that his identity and security were rooted in Christ, he had more money than he needed. The grace of God had transformed his attitude and his whole life towards money. I have a BBA in finance and an MBA and planned on being the CEO of a bank and retiring early when I was around 50 and teaching college for 10 years. And that was my life plan and my life goal, and that was what I was working towards. It was a good plan. It was a really good plan, and God's plan was even better, at, which is always true, by the way. And I still did get to teach college, actually, for more than 10 years, so boo, bonus. And, um, but I, I share that with you because money was a large part of my life. I, I, I was training to be the CEO. I worked in trust for several years and then went over to lending. There's only three parts of a bank. I was never a teller, but I did the two main parts. So... I, God chose to work with me in this area of my life by the people that he put in my life, one of which is my husband, Ken, and some of you know him, and uh, he's got a lot of spiritual gifts. He's the most like Jesus that I know on the earth, but one of his spiritual gifts is giving, and this was great while we were dating, by the way. And really good, even when, we, when I went away to college, he gave me a going away to college present, and he was coming to the same college I was. So this was fabulous. But, you know, I should have known that this was also going to follow us into our marriage, right? So uh, one Ken story, I come home from work one day. He was already home. I had stayed a little late that night. And when I pulled into the driveway, I saw another couple in our car driving off and Ken standing there waving and I'm like thinking I guess they needed to borrow the car and then I when I looked at Ken's face and he was so happy I'm like I don't think that's for me I don't think like he's that happy to see me and it dawned on me what has happened again so I got out of the car and I said hey what's going on and he said I just gave him our car Y'all, we had two cars. It's not like we had three cars. We had two cars, and he just gave one of our cars away. And he's like, and, and my face, and I got, I, I didn't like burst into tears. They just watered. You know how they just fill with water, and like a tear was on the verge. And Ken looked at my face, and his face fell. And it was one of the saddest moments of our marriage. I don't know how better to explain that to you because I knew I was responsible for his face. And he, we walked towards one another, and he said, what's wrong? And I thought, well, where shall I start here? <laughs> so I thought, I sh need to just be honest in this moment. And I said, I, I, I'm afraid that one day I'm going to come home, Ken, and you are going to have given away our house. And he said, oh, I won't ever, I promise I won't ever give away our house. Okay, well, one thing's safe, you know. <laughs> and we went inside, and we talked some more, and 
I, I had another fear. He, he said, well, well, okay, so I won't give away our house. So what else is wrong? He said, we'll get another car. I said, well, we have one car now, and I'm headed to the bank tomorrow, you know, to work. What are you doing? And he's like, we'll get another car. I'm like, okay. And he said, what else is wrong? And I said, I'm just, I'm afraid that you're going to get taken advantage of. And that was the real, that was my real, it took me three questions to get to my real problem with him. And you know what he said to me? Oh, this is, he said, yeah, I probably will, but that's okay. And God started doing a change in my heart when I saw his attitude. Does that make sense? It's like, it's not like he pierced me and, oh, that was so painful. It was just like, it was like a wanting to be that way. Does that, it was, was, I knew I wasn't that way and I wanted to be that way. So God has been working on, that was at the beginning of our marriage and we've been married for a long time now, I think 35 years now. And I, God also, maybe he, God saw I was slipping a little bit, and so he gave me a child who's one of her spiritual gifts is giving. I know it's not all about me, but I do love that he sandwiched me between two people who's, they just give everything away. I, if you don't live with one of these people, you can't even imagine. You just can't even imagine. I wrote down eight stories in less than three minutes, you know, just jotting things down each one I have learned something from living with them so oh so one well okay so one story I'll tell one story one Catherine story so when she was in elementary school she was six years old and we had a rule when on Saturday night you put everything that needed to go to church one of two places, upstairs at the top of the stairs or downstairs by the exit door on a, I had a heart rug. And that's where things went. So that Sunday morning, we're, where's the Bible? Where's the library? I want peace as we exit, right? So I went upstairs on Saturday night to kiss the kids goodnight. And at the top of the stairs was Catherine's children's Bible with all these bills sticking out of it. Ones, fives, tens. If you know Catherine, that's exactly her. So I'm like, oh, okay, well. So I go in and I kiss Catherine goodnight. I said, hey, I noticed you're all ready for church out there. She goes, yeah, I said, yeah, I saw your Bible. She said, yeah. And I said, I, I, saw, I noticed there was some money, you know, poking out. And she's like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to give that away. I said, oh. And like, you know, she's six, and it was quite a bit of money. And I said, oh, where'd you get that money? And she said, I cleaned out my bank. Now, she had a little safe in her room. The combination was right on the bottom of the safe, but it did, that didn't matter. And she had taken all of her money out from her birthday and Christmas that she had gotten, and it was all in her Bible. And I thought, okay, Lord Jesus, I, I already knew her spiritual gift was giving at this point. I already knew that. And it was this moment of, I got to teach her something, but I don't even know what I'm supposed to teach her here, Lord, and I don't want to squelch the gift. I don't want to do what I did with my husband that day. So I just started talking while I was praying. I said, you know, there was a guy in the Bible that Jesus told to give all his money away. Did you know that? 
And she, she was listening. She said, no. I said, yeah. He told him, give all his money away. Do you know why he did that? She said, no. I said, well, I don't either. But I think why he did that was because Jesus can see our hearts. And he saw that that man loved his money and his stuff and his things more than he loved Jesus. So Jesus was trying to help him. She goes, oh, I said, but did you know that in another part of scripture, Jesus gives instructions to the rich and you are rich. And she's like, yeah, I know. And um, I said, did you know that though? Do you know what he said? And she said, no. So I went out and got her children's Bible. Oh, I got too many. Uh, and I, again, you guys, I'm praying the whole time. I don't know even what I'm going to say. I'm just praying, oh God, just take your word. I don't know. I don't know. And I don't want to mess this up. So I went to the end of first Timothy, the last chapter, chapter six. And I read, tell those who are rich in this world. And I stopped. I said, that's you, Catherine. You know, she's smiling. I said, not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which will soon be gone. But their trust should be in the living God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and should give generously to those in need, always being ready to share with others whatever God has given them. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of real life. And I finished and I was almost in a panic mode because I didn't actually even know what to say. I li- didn't like know what I was going to say next. And the second I stopped and I closed her Bible, she said, I get it. And I'm like, oh, thank you. I said, what'd you get? <laughs> and she said that I'm always supposed to be ready to give. If I give all my money away tomorrow, I won't have any left ready to give. I'm like, yes, that's it. She's like, vacation bible school is coming and i want to give some to that i'm like yes and she came up with like some other things that were already in her head that she wanted to give to and there was not going to be a replenishment of the supply ladies she's six okay so she's not like going to work somewhere and going to get some more money before these so she said i said would you like to me to get some baggies because that's another rule once you're in bed do not get out of bed unless the house is on fire so she said yes so I went downstairs and I got some baggies and I came back up and she start, started sorting her money out and she did give most of it away the next day but she kept some I don't know if she learned anything that you know you might ask her about that story and she might not even remember it I remember it for all my life because the lesson is I'm always supposed to be ready to give isn't that beautiful I'm always supposed to be ready to give. Okay, there's just so many more lessons. I can't, we don't have time. But I encourage you, this is a challenge God gives you in the Bible. Check out the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi 3. And after God has reprimanded his people for not giving, he issues a challenge to him and says, go ahead and and bring it in, give it. And then watch, I'll open the windows of heaven and pour it out so much you can't even take it. That's paraphrased, but you read it for yourself, Malachi 3. All right, the second, uh, and then there are, so what? Now what's uh, again on the bottom of your page there for you to answer for yourself? The second one that we all have time for today is people relationships. And again, because Kelly talked about this one with Rachel and Leah, uh, I'll just throw myself under the bus again and share what God has taught me about this because this was one of uh, still is one of the idols that I battle with. Um, What brought this to my attention 
um, was a question a friend asked me once. And it was just in conversation, and she said, what are you most afraid of? And I thought for a minute, and I said, I, um, Ken dying before me. I wasn't afraid to die. I, that's how we get to see Jesus face to face, right? You know that, right? So I, I wasn't afraid to die, but I didn't want to live without, G, without Ken on the earth. And the second I said it out loud, my biggest fear, when I said the words, like at the same moment, this red flag went off of there's something wrong with that. And again, God began this work in my life. I confessed it to him as sin. And it took years for me to fully, really, really, for real, all the way, 100% realize that it is only God that I cannot live without. Um, no human relationship can bear the burden of Godhead. That's Ernest Becker in The Denial of Death. And God puts it this way in Colossians 3. Since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, reveal, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. So no one can ever be my life except for Christ. So I understand, as this was, again, this was, uh, several decades ago um, and as I started uh, seeking God on so how does this look like what do I do with this I know I, I know that I'm not doing and being what you want me to be here but I didn't know what to do with it and so I I was looking at Matthew 22 and I'm like I think I get that Lord you know it says to love you with all that I am and then love others and then I went on to Matthew 10 and Luke 14 and I'm like, okay, I don't know if I get these. Matthew 10 says, if you love your father or mother more than you love me, you're not worthy of being mine. Or if you love your son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of being mine. And then in Luke, if you want to be my disciple, you must by comparison hate everyone else, your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. And I thought, oh good, he didn't say husband. Yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. As I meditated on these scriptures and uh, looked truly to the Spirit to help me understand what to, what to do with this, I understood that it's a comparison. It's not that God is asking me to love people less. I am to love him more. And the gap is huge. And to understand the gap, I started thinking about the holiness of God. We've talked about this actually two weeks ago. I gave you a bunch of scripture where it says there's no one like our God. Remember that? And to, to meditate on that and go, there is no, like God is like here. See, in my mind, the way the list went was God, you know, my husband, my children, our family, our friends, our church. You know, it was like a list, like that's how in my mind, I, I'm a list maker anyway, so that's in my mind. And what God showed me is, no, it's not God kin it's God and everybody else the gap is huge do you understand what I mean because God is holy and set apart I am to love him holy w-h-o-l-l-y because he is holy h-o-l-y 
I don't know if that helps you, but that really helped me not to love them less, to love him more. Okay, I, I hope that makes sense to you. So I began reorienting and refocusing on God, and guess what I found? I loved him more, right? The more I know him, remember from our very first time in the fall, the more I know him, the more I love him. And then the more I love him, guess what? The more I love these others too, and I love them better. Okay, so let's keep going. Fast forward now several decades later, January of 2017, so two years ago. I know that's when I read it because I write it in the front of the book. I came across this book. You and Me Forever, Marriage in Light of Eternity by the Chans. Francis and Lisa wrote this together. And I was looking at this book and it, uh, in the bookstore, and in the back it said, Marriage is great, but it's not forever. And I thought, okay, well, this is interesting. So I read down, um, and then I thought, well, I always like to read the, the table of contents. So I read the table of contents, and it said, Chapter 1, Marriage Isn't That Great. I thought, okay, i got to get this book. So I got it. And you know what? I, I wish I would have had this decades ago whenever God pointed this out in my life through my friend's question I, I wish I would have had this then it was so helpful to read and so I encourage you if this is one of the gods that you struggle with this is a great book and it's on your handout on the back so you don't have to write it down or anything you and me forever and look how good it is like look at my yellow highlights are like everywhere it's a good book so I'm not giving you the top 10 I was just going to read you two excerpts because I know some of you aren't readers and some of you will never have the time to read. Um, and I'll read it quickly for you. Don't worry about all the words up there. It's just sometimes people like, some are visual learners and like to see it as I read it. You can also just listen. I just did two quotes, one from Francis, he's the man, and then one from his wife, Lisa, Okay. We have made happy families our mission. That is not the mission that Jesus gave us, but we try to justify this idolizing of marriage because it's what we want. Part of the mission is having a healthy marriage. Our mission does not call us to neglect our marriages, but a marriage cannot be healthy unless we are seeking his kingdom and righteousness first. Don't forget that marriage is a good thing. God designed it after all. Indeed, marriage can enable us to do more than we could accomplish alone. But like every good thing, Satan can use our relationships with each other for evil. Sadly, we believe that this has become the norm in our churches. Marriage-centered marriages have become accepted and applauded rather than Christ-centered ones. We often hear the phrase, God first, family second, in church circles. While we say it a lot, I don't see how this phrase is actually impacting anyone. Think about it. What if you were to switch to a family first mentality? What actions would you really have to change? You have to really think about that question to understand what he's saying. I put it on your so what now what questions, and this section are compliments of the chans, okay? This is what Lisa's, uh, the one excerpt I took of her. Growing up, all I ever wanted to be was a wife and mom, but without even realizing it, I had elevated these roles higher than my truest identity as a child of God. Much of my effort went into being a great wife and mom rather than being a great woman of God. Obviously, God wants me to love my husband and train my children well. The danger comes in when we overemphasize anything other than the fact that we are here for his purposes. You are more than a spouse. If you have been blessed with kids, you are more than a parent. You have a unique role in the kingdom of God, and he has great works for you to do that he planned before you were born. For some of you, it's just the plain old idolatry of the family. I want you to seriously ask yourself, 
Do I spend more time focusing on being a good spouse and parent or more time focusing on being a godly person? It's the very simple but profound difference between running each day off your own agenda and actually taking the time to be with Jesus to pray. So I just encourage you, remember, no human, no human relationship can bear the burden of Godhood. Jeremiah 17. This is what the Lord says. Cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans who rely on human strength and turn their hearts away from the Lord. But blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and confidence. If these two gods, false gods that I've talked about today, aren't ones that you struggle with, the principle remains the same. That it is only the Lord that we are to trust. And our one true God is to be our hope and our confidence. So if I want to avoid idolatry, worshiping false gods, whatever they may be, again, yours might not be money or people at all, then the more that I know the true God, the, the less these false gods become appealing. We've talked about this, right? And we've talked so far three ways to know the true God through his living word, through his written word. And the last time we were together, we talked about the Holy Spirit, remember? Today, I'm just doing an introduction to the fourth and last way I want to talk with you about knowing the one true God. We began our study in Exodus 20. Do you remember that? And we looked at the Ten Commandments, and before they start, God identifies himself. Before he gives any rule, he identifies himself as their God. Don't miss that. That's really important. He says, I am your God. And he reminds them what he's done for them. And then he tells them, don't worship other gods and don't make other idols. On, on your handout are other scriptures, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, three in Deuteronomy, I believe, Joshua and 2 Kings. You can read those on your own. Now, remember our breathing exercise? Breathing is natural for the living. So is worship. But then why does God tell us to worship if it's natural? Remember, uh, again, from our first time when I asked you guys to give me examples of what you hear parents say to their young children at the dinner table. And we talked about you never hear eat your dessert, right? Because you only say to people, young children, and God would only say to us what doesn't come naturally. So then why does God tell us to worship? Look back at the scripture again and look at what he actually is telling us to do. And I encourage you to read that scripture again in Exodus 20. It's on your handout. What God is telling us, he is telling us who to worship and who and what not to worship. He knows we will worship. Why? Because we are made for worship and he made us that way. So we are all walk, walking around worshiping something. All of us, an atheist is walking around worshiping something. So what God has taught me is that just because something is natural doesn't mean that it is easy. So worship is natural, as natural as breathing in and breathing out to the Christian, but not always easy. This is true in the physical world. Breathing is natural, but not necessarily easy. Think of the respiratory issues, asthma allergies, lung problems. So as I look into God's word in the Old Testament and the New Testament, especially at what Jesus had to say, and I examine my own life, 
I'm alerted to some challenges even in these area, in this area that should be natural. We may all be breathing, but some are breathing easier than others. What about that inhale and exhale factor? In scripture, the word worship is used two mainly different ways. To, to denote an overall way of life and the specific activity. When the prophet Jonah said, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land, he is speaking of his whole manner of life. Compare that to in Psalm 100 when it says, worship the Lord with gladness, come before him singing with joy. That's the more narrow concept of worship, the one that we probably associate the quickest when I say the word worship, we think of coming to church and singing songs together or praying or you understand the, the two differences. So I just want us to, as we look at worship the next time that we're together, I, I want you to be thinking broader of the word worship. And I want you to think of it as inhaling and exhaling. And I want you to think of your moments of worship as the inhale which then allows you to have a life of worship. And there is a difference, and we're going to talk about that next time. The question I want to leave you with, what allows me to inhale deeply in the specific activity of worship, which then affords me the capacity to exhale in an overall way of living worship? So you have two weeks to think about that and then I'll come back for our last time together. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you do not leave us like we are, that you continue to mold us and make us into the image of your Son, all for your glory, with so much patience and so much love and understanding. We're so grateful to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.